nombre es Clara. Mi nombre es Maribel. Yo soy una trabajadora doméstica y he sido afectada por el coronavirus. I am a domestic worker and have been affected by coronavirus. When I was working before the pandemic, the products affected me a lot, and perhaps sometimes because of the fear of losing a job, one continues to endure at whatever cost. I ended up getting small stains on my hands due to the products, and the bleach irritated my eyes and throat intensely. These are aggressive chemicals that a lot of people like to use, yet for me, they've given me allergies in my body, on my hands, it's like I've been damaged. We lost everything, and unfortunately we did not receive help. What we received was that they turned their back on us. That is why we are asking our employers that if before they called us to clean their homes, today we are asking they support us with this situation. What you just heard were the voices of a few of the thousands, if not millions, of women who work as household cleaners in the U.S. It's difficult to track the number of people in this sector, but as of 2020, prior to the pandemic, the Economic Policy Institute counted more than 2.2 million people working in private homes in some capacity. Domestic workers are overwhelmingly female, and over half are women of color. COVID-19, as it has with so many social issues, has brought to light the unsafe and unfair conditions cleaning workers face. In the past year, all of us are probably using more cleaning products than we ever have in order to feel as though we're staying safe from COVID. But cleaning workers have been using these products every day for years on end, long before the pandemic. It's time to learn from the women who are directly exposed to products that threaten their health, and about a workplace that historically and currently has very few labor protections, insufficient COVID precautions, and often demands the use of toxic chemicals. Domestic work is work, and as of now, not safe for the millions of women who call themselves cleaners. Welcome to Persistent and Pervasive, Feminist Take on Toxics. Episode two, part one, Cleaning a Stained Industry. Welcome back to the podcast, and welcome to our first installment in our mini-series on domestic workers and toxic chemicals. Thank you to all who listened to our pilot episode. We were so proud to release it and are even more excited to keep this series going. Stick with us to learn more as we explore the toxic chemicals and consumer products marketed to women and girls, understand who bears the brunt of these exposures, and learn from the feminist scientists and activists who are raising awareness and finding solutions. As a reminder, my name is Sally Edwards. I am an environmental health scientist and longtime feminist, and I work alongside Anna here. Hello again. I do a lot of the production here at Persistent and Pervasive. I'm a producer and an archive coordinator who focuses on environmental justice and the history of social movements. Also, I believe I heard a new voice introduce this episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie San Andres, project coordinator of the Safe and Just Cleaners Research and Action Project at Make the Road New York, a collaboration with Queens College and the School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. The Safe and Just Cleaners Project is a community-based participatory project aimed at understanding exposure to cleaning chemicals and disinfectants among Latinx domestic cleaners in New York City. I got involved in this work because of my passion for justice and interest in how chemicals disproportionately impact workers of color. As a brown Latina of indigenous descent and daughter of Ecuadorian immigrants, 
I vividly remember my father coming home with paint on his hands and clothes after he painted cars all day at work for many years. And I remember how my mom at one point cleaned hotels and the days when I would go with my cousins to help my tia clean offices so she could get the job done quicker. So when I learned that household cleaners have increased risk of asthma and other respiratory symptoms associated with cleaning products, I wanted to get involved. Why are the lives and health of some workers worth more than others? We know the answer is embedded in class, racial, and gender inequality, and my hope is that through our work, we can change that. That's a big theme of the day. Why are some lives and livelihoods cared about while others are totally forgotten? For those of you at home, how many of you hire domestic workers to come into your living space? How many of you spontaneously asked them to stop coming last year because of concern about coronavirus? Were you able to continue paying them, or were they left without pay? Who of you are domestic workers? The women in this sector have had to fight continually for their labor to be seen for what it is, often backbreaking work that deserves good pay. For so many reasons, domestic work is undervalued and often exploitative. The more I dug into the history of domestic work, the more questions I had. In addition to these questions about the history of domestic workers and their organizing efforts, there's the issue of ongoing exposure to toxic chemicals, as well as what safer yet still effective options are out there. The first installment of this two-part episode focuses on the problem itself. We will learn about the toxic chemicals of concern in cleaning products from an environmental scientist. And then we will dig into the history around domestic work with a pair of feminist historians. Our conversation will explore who does most of this country's cleaning work, why that is, and how domestic work conditions, including the use of unsafe products, has come to be. We will also hear more from cleaning workers about the hardships in their work. In the second installment, we'll focus on the actions being taken to address the problem. We will learn from community organizers, scientists, and domestic workers who are making progress toward lasting and positive change. I think that once listeners know about what is going on in the domestic cleaning work sector, it's not really something anyone can ignore. Keep in mind, domestic workers are three times as likely to be living in poverty as other workers. Many are not protected by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, also known as OSHA, and many studies have shown that domestic cleaners develop breathing problems like asthma and skin problems from cleaning products. For example, in a recent study, researchers found that the accelerated lung function decline in women working as cleaners was comparable to smoking 10 to 20 pack years. And may I say that this lack of legal protection is no coincidence. Farm workers and domestic workers are the two industries that have been historically excluded from basic labor laws. And this lies in this country's history of slavery and colonization. So I have some questions about what we even mean when we say cleanliness, as there has been a cultural obsession with sanitation. And I know history enough to say that a lot of racist and colonialist violence has been done in the name of hygiene. I also have questions about the use of the term cleanliness, but in a different context what we mean when we say clean versus what we mean when we say disinfect and how those words have been misunderstood, especially during the pandemic. Well, you two are in luck because we're going to be able to answer both your questions by the end of the episode. I thought we would start with Sally's. We spoke with Alex Grant, Director of Science and Research for Women's Voices for the Earth, so that she could give us a lowdown on what is actually going on in regard to the chemical makeup of these products and how they can affect your health. 
So what are the toxic chemicals that you are most concerned about that are in cleaning products? Um, the number one category for sure is those um, antimicrobial disinfectant chemicals. Um, we're really particularly concerned about quats, which are quaternary ammonium compounds. Um, these are very still very commonly used, particularly in household disinfectants. Um, and they are, you know, again, very potent disinfectants. They can they can affect your um, they can really kill germs very well. Um, at the same time, they're lung irritants, so they'll affect your breathing. <laughs> Workers who use quats end up um, with much higher risk of occupational asthma. Um, it can affect um, your um, your skin. It really it, it's it's a it's a skin irritant, so it'll give you rashes and dermatitis with uh, extended exposure. We're really concerned about the reproductive health effects of quats. Um, this has only been tested in mice so far. We don't know what it's doing to humans, um, but in mice, mice that are cleaned in cages that have been cleaned with quats have a terrible time getting pregnant. They have a lot of fertility issues. Um, the ones that can get pregnant tend to have birth defects, like neural tube defects, higher risk of that. Um, so we're very concerned about whether or not those effects are happening in humans. Again, it's never been studied, so we don't know what's happening. To, to women of reproductive age, particularly exposed to these chemicals. Wow, I did not know that. That is really concerning, especially given how in our study, 26% of 400 immigrant Latinx household cleaners surveyed across New York stated that they continued working while pregnant. Because of COVID-19, I understand that domestic cleaning workers have been using more cleaning products as well as more disinfectants. Can you please explain the difference between cleaning and disinfecting? Sure. Yeah. And, and there is a very technical difference between the two terms. Um, so cleaning involves the removal of dirt or germs or whatever from surfaces, right? Um, usually involving, you know, soap or detergent. It's about removing what's there, getting rid of dirt and grime on surfaces. And they can also remove germs that are present on surface. Um, disinfecting, on the other hand, involves using chemicals generally approved by the EPA as pesticides to kill germs on surfaces, generally on cleaned, pre-cleaned surfaces. And generally, in order to kill them with disinfectant, you have to clean first. Um, germs can hang out in dirt and grime um, and live quite well. Um, so they need to, the, the surfaces need to be cleaned and then they can be disinfected. Um, and then the other thing with it, it, these antimicrobial chemicals, particularly quats we're seeing this with, is that they can cause the sort of rise in superbugs or the um, antibiotic resistance. So we're creating these bugs that then we can't kill when you go to the, you know, go to the doctor and get a you know, general round of antibiotics. Um, so that's, that's, you know, that's also very problematic um, with these antimicrobial chemicals. Why would these really harmful chemicals, you know, be in products at all? I mean, First of all, why are they there? And also, if we just, you know, follow the directions on the back on the sticker of, you know, use as directed, can't we do this in a safe way? It goes back to really these chemicals usually being created for hospital settings. I mean, this is where you really want to be careful with these antimicrobial chemicals about germs, right? Um, and you need very clean surfaces when you're doing these, you know, very sensitive procedures and um, with open skin and, and things like that. Um, and then they've just sort of migrated into the consumer um, products as like, oh, well, this is going to even be even better. And you should worry about germs at home. And, and you know, this, this will, these will kill your germs at home, too, um, without doing a, 
very much research really into what effect that's having on people's health. So there are certainly instructions on the back of, of cleaning products. Those are very important to read and important to follow. For the most part, they are taking care of any like potential acute um, symptoms you might have. I mean, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be drinking or eating these things. You know, you don't want to pour them in your eyes. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, acute effects that can, that can happen. Um, there's not, as I said, there's not a lot of research. Should you be using this if you're pregnant? Should you be inhaling it? How much is going to be a problem? You know, it's it's interesting when you mention that, Alex, about how um, certain chemicals that perform well in hospital settings have migrated out into consumer settings. And I think what happens is companies see that there's a market um, for the performance. And then all of a sudden it's in it's like very hard to find a product that it doesn't have it in it. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, it's, it's entirely been a marketing thing. They found that people were like, oh, well, I better buy the antibacterial dish soap because that's going to do better. I don't want to get food poisoning. So I'm going to use the antibacterial, you know, one when really the regular soap is going to do you just fine. It's, you know, and it's, and it's always worked and it's, it's always been fine. Um, but it became, you know, a marketing thing to say antibacterial on it. And people thought, well, this is better for my health because this is going to kill the bad germs that are, you know, in my kitchen and out to get me. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's interesting how people have come to, to greater understand kind of more judicious use of antibiotics, you know, and people are like concerned about taking antibiotics and they realize what they do to their stomach. And I mean, there's all kinds of things, but then it's the same idea in your kitchen. Why are you loading up your kitchen with antibiotics? Would you say that some communities bear the brunt of these impacts more than others? We're very concerned, particularly about black and brown women and their exposures. Again, they're much more likely to be cleaning for a living. Um, so they have that occupational um, exposure. They also have all those layers of other um, health effects and social determinants of health that are impacting um, their ability to, to, to react to, to the chemicals that are in these cleaning products. Um, there, you know, there, there are lots of disparities, health disparities in black and brown women as well. So they're much more likely to have these underlying conditions that could make exposures worse or that could be exacerbated by exposures to, um, to cleaning products, things like asthma or other re- um, uh, respiratory um, issues. Um, it's a lot harder to, to deal with some of the, particularly the more volatile um, chemicals that are coming off, uh, off of cleaning products um, when you have respiratory um, issues uh, already. We have also heard that some cleaning products are specifically being targeted to Latinx communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Manufacturers of cleaning products, for example, when they want to market cleaners to a Latinx community, they use much more heavily scented cleaners. And that is how they're marketing and that's how they're selling these products. So those women particularly who are using these cleaners are going to get this extra dose of fragrance, which can include a whole lot of chemicals that we just don't know anything about. Those chemicals are often kept secret. Um, So we're very concerned about that. There's also a lot of cultural aspects to cleaning. What does your house smell like if it's clean? It smells like pine salt or it smells like chlorine bleach. Um, Clean shouldn't smell like anything. Wow, that's so true and wrong. Um, I have definitely seen a lot of well-meaning Latinx comedians, some even social media pages and memes that are specifically talking about how cleaning is part of the Latinx culture. And I believe there was one comedian that said, tell me from A to Z, what comes to mind when you think of Latino? 
And when they started with A, they said Ajax. And now there's even these little pins coming out with Fabuloso on it, as if it's part of our culture, right? It's almost like Fabuloso is part of us expressing our Latinx cultural pride. And there's not so much questioning of why or why is this being targeted towards our community and how is this impacting our communities? So I don't know if you're maybe able to share a little bit more about Fabuloso. Um, is this some a product that we should be concerned about? Um, we're, you know, we're very concerned about Fabuloso, um, partly because it is heavily fragranced. I mean, that's, you know, one thing. And until this past January, we didn't know what was in that fragrance. It's got a reproductive toxin in there that I don't think women who are, you know, looking to get pregnant and who are pregnant should be exposed to. But no one has known that and nobody knows this chemical is in there. Um, and that's a real concern. When companies like are targeting their marketing towards Latinx or Black and Indigenous communities, that they are like very open, that they are like heavy fragrance. Um, so yeah, can you just talk about what what you're referencing there, and like if they are being so clear, what are companies actually saying? Sure, I mean you'll see um, things kind of like press releases, like we've just launched this new line, you know, for for the for the Latinx community or for you know for our Hispanic consumers. And they particularly say, like, we're, we've got it in this scent and this scent and this scent. And they're like, you know, maybe there's specific scents that they think are going to be more attractive. Um, certainly when you're smelling these products, you, I mean, they are just much more heavily scented. Um, it's a much stronger scent um, than, than some of their other products. So they, you know, enhance that and, and provide it um, without really thinking about what those exposures might actually be doing um, to our health. So there are millions of women of prime reproductive age using these cleaning products on a daily basis. Why do you think there is so little research on the health impacts of exposure to quats? I, I think there has just been an assumption that cleaning products are safe. Um, and so there's no research into finding out whether or not they're dangerous. Um, and because they're more often used by women, then people are not looking as carefully as to what the effect might be. Um, on the women that are using these products. Exactly. Women, and particularly women of color's health, is not being taken seriously. Earlier, when Alex mentioned that health disparities exist among black and brown women, I couldn't help but think about how we got here. So I think it's important to dive deeper and explore domestic workers' history to understand why their health is largely ignored. Because missing from this conversation is a question about how has capitalism, racism, sexism, and colonization shaped the treatment of domestic workers across time? And how has this history shaped health inequities today? We found two experts to speak about this history in depth. Dr. Jennifer Guglielmo is an associate professor of history at Smith College. She is a historian of labor, race, women, migration, and revolutionary social movements in the late 19th and 20th century United States. And Dr. Michelle Holfroy is an associate professor of Spanish who teaches about cultural production in the United States-Mexico borderlands, Zapatismo, and indigenous culture resistance, women's narratives, environmental justice, and transnational social movements. They are both currently engaged in a collaborative, community-based, public history project with the National Domestic Workers Alliance, or NDWA. The NDWA, founded in 2007, works towards respect, recognition, and inclusion in labor protections for domestic workers, the majority of whom are immigrants and women of color. The goal of our guest's project is to develop an online history curriculum for workers to use for their political education and organizing. 
They have posted this digital resource online so that anyone can learn about the history of domestic work. This is the timeline we will occasionally be referencing in the interview. Content warning, the true stories from history in this segment contain descriptions of racial and sexual violence. I began asking a question of Michelle. The timeline begins with the question, why do women of color do domestic work? We notice the time period begins around 30,000 years ago. Why do you start so far back in history, and why does that first question have such a long answer? Why is the answer so long? Because um, the problem has been so long. Since it's a U.S.-based history we're telling, um, which must account for its colonial, um, continued colonial structures, um, we thought about the conditions of labor under colonization. and how patriarchal norms that devalue women's lives and labor in the 15th, 16th centuries were the sort of birth of what we call today global racial capitalism. We wanted to make visible a long history of defining women's labor for uses other than women's own emancipation and agency. We wanted domestic work to be understood as racialized and distorted Um, To justify capitalism's continued economic exploitation, colonization, racial capitalism, and patriarchy depend fully on devaluing the work that women of color do. But equally important, right, we wanted to, to gesture and affirm that there are other constructs that were present and that were um, a real threat you know, to colonization. And among those was, you know, this notion of, um, which we pull out of the Aztec cosmology as care work, as essential to life. And there was a lot of power embedded in that. Um, The the pandemic, I think, has um, allowed us to see domestic work and women's work and care work as essential, right, to life. But that's not a new idea. It's a very, very old idea that that was stripped out and stripped away. Um, so that's that's kind of you know <laughs> a long answer to the long question. Michelle really rocketed out of the gates with this first question. I agree. I especially appreciate Dr. Hofroy bringing in the concept of global racial capitalism because we've tended to think about class struggle isolated from racism, when in fact the history of capitalism is so intertwined with racism and colonization. For example, Europe and the global north became developed by taking from the global south, a process that was and continues to be based on the dehumanization of black and indigenous peoples in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Because when you dehumanize people, then you can justify taking their land, taking their resources, and enslaving them. This has happened historically and continues to this day. For example, this is why so many brown and black women are forcibly displaced from their lands in the global south, why many migrate and end up being paid subpar wages and working in unsafe conditions when cleaning homes in the global north. So Jennifer, we're hoping you can unpack the phrase like one of the family, which has been widely used in regard to domestic workers. One thing I learned right away when I started studying this history is that phrase has been used for centuries. <laughs> it's not it's not just a product of Jim Crow or yeah. of racial segregation. It's it it goes back further. 
um, it's it's rooted in the histories of enslavement ultimately um, and so domestic workers themselves have for many 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 decades called that into question this notion that they are like family that employers you know use that phrase but she's like family um, that's something that we found that domestic workers um, pinpoint to disrupt that um, uh, be, for so many reasons, right? For one, because it hides the ways that they are not actually family members, but they are workers within the household. And that by imagining that way, it's, it's erasing the fact that they are workers, right? Who are entitled to certain um, labor conditions and rights like any other workers. I think a really good example of one place you can go to kind of study to understand more about this is Alice Childress was writing in the 1940s and 50s and later. Her great-grandmother had been enslaved and she grew up around women who were doing domestic work their whole lives, right? She was African-American and, um, and when she began writing, she wanted to write about these women's lives and tell their stories. And so she um, published a book uh, in 1956 that was called Like One of the Family. And, um, and part of what she said, I can read you a little part of it, um, you know, was how it, employers would actually usually say things like she's like one of the family in front of guests, right? It was mm -hmm. performative. And so she, uh, what she writes here is about this woman, Mildred, who is a black domestic worker and in the 1950s. And in the book, Mildred responds and says, quote, you think it's a compliment when you say we don't think of her as a servant. But after I've worked myself into a sweat, cleaning the bathroom and the kitchen, making the beds, cooking the lunch, I do not feel like no weekend house guest. I feel like a servant. And in the face of that, I have been meaning to ask you for a slight raise, which will make me feel much better toward everyone here and make me know my work is appreciated. And I think that encaptures so powerfully, right? It's like to say you're like one of the family isn't the way you show respect. It's by paying people right. well. It's by giving people good working conditions. That's the way you show respect. And it felt inevitable that at some point the conversation would turn to COVID. Michelle definitely had a lot to say on that. How have you been seeing the treatment of domestic workers during COVID, especially with the historical context of how domestic workers have been impacted during previous pandemics? I'll say there have been a lot of those sort of eerie, uncanny moments. So some of the parallels I would say that, you know, we are stunned uh, by are the ways that not just employers, but the state really abandoned domestic workers to survive um, under conditions that are almost insurmountable. So that sort of abandonment, right? Um, the letting go of domestic workers in an economy where there is literally no no economic safety net at all. Speaking of families, right, when they return home, right, to multi-generational households in many cases, right, mm -hmm. so this kind of lack of regard for the health and safety of the worker and the assumption that the family for whom one works takes priority. Um, that has been a very steady sort of parallel. And I guess the last bullet point would be the the kind of overexposure and vulnerability of domestic workers and their communities to violence um, of all kinds, 
to, to police violence, uh, to economic violence, a kind of vulnerability that has real um, material impacts and, and physical and emotional um, and psychological impacts. One of the histories that we can share or that we share in the timeline is down on the border um, in uh, on the Texas-Mexico border. So in between 1882 and uh, 1903, there's like seven or eight yellow fever outbreaks right along this U.S. border. The first one in 1882 is the one that, uh, you know, I, th I think helps us to see um, the parallels best. And at that moment, what happened was that the U.S. government decided that to prevent the spread of yellow fever, which is a mosquito-borne illness, you can't inoculate, right? You just have to take public health measures. The, the, the approach that they took was to create a travel ban and create a quarantine zone to prevent people from moving from place to place and bringing their mosquitoes with them, basically. The government armed and deputized former white military agents, um, vigilantes, basically, um, at, who were authorized as part of their enforcement authority to shoot and kill anybody who violated the travel ban um, or the quarantine zone. The domestic workers are predominantly Mexicana or Mexican-American working class women. And to go to work, I mean, they must work, they must work. <laughs> to go to work, they must move through space. So the very act of going to work criminalizes them. I appreciate you bringing in that history. Can you tell us a little bit more and how domestic workers have resisted some of this violence, if at all? A lot of what you were just sharing in terms of the vulnerability and violence against workers crossing the border also reminded me of how during a typhus outbreak, Mexican laborers' bodies would be sprayed with pesticide DDT in order to cross the border. And many of those workers were also domestic workers. And these practices seem to still happen today where recently ICE detainees were sprayed with pesticides that contain quats, which we learned from Alex earlier are toxic chemicals. So the story that you first referenced, right, is the story of um, the U.S., well, the focus of it was the U.S.-Mexico border right at El Paso, uh, Juarez. And um, in the early 20th century, you know, so in the 19, early 1900s, prior to 1924, there really was no sort of like border patrol control. You know, there was there were U.S. agencies monitoring the movement of workers, but laborers crossed all the time. What we saw happen on the border was, in fact, this sort of alternative way of controlling and policing immigrant bodies. And the typhus outbreak um, just just for clarity's sake, so typhus was in fact present, but not at the border. It was much deeper in Mexico. The migration that was moving almost on a daily basis across that border was um, pretty much not implicated in that, but as a sort of public display, right, of US authority over that border and of control over those laboring bodies, they did um, install both the machinery and the chemical um, components to force all migrate, migrant workers. And again, they're coming back and forth on a daily basis. This isn't like they come here and so once a year they get exposed. It's For some it's every day, for some it's twice a week. You are then asked to take your clothes and put them through these high powered steamers that you know ruin the clothes, um, supposedly to disinfect them when there's 
very little evidence that anybody's infected. In fact, there were no real protocols for determining if anybody was infected. The assumption was they're infected. Um, and then doused repeatedly with um, caustic chemicals. DDT is one of the components they've described. Some of the chemicals used it later in gas chambers and in concentration camps. You know, oh, the other thing, let me just say is women subjected to this practice, on top of the humiliation and the toxicity of it, the sexual exploitation and harassment of them, they were photographed secretly while nude. And those photographs were then distributed among US agents. Okay, it's, it's obscene. So um, on the morning of January 28th, 1917, Carmelita Torres, a domestic worker from Juarez, is on the trolley. What happens is protesters, folks on both sides of the border, just, you know, start amassing thousands of people protesting, demanding that they stop using this humiliating, toxic bath on workers, takes U.S. and Mexican military agents all day to clear the space, and they shut the border down. They shut it down. They they said no more. Now, it didn't end the baths. It did temper some of the ways that the U.S. flagrantly deployed its um, power over uh, immigrant laboring um, people, um, Mexicans. Dolores Huerta made the case in congressional te uh, testimony at one point that the spraying of pesticides on the fields when the workers are in the field is a continuation of what those bats were. For those who are not familiar with her work, Dolores Huerta is a Chicana labor and civil rights activist who was instrumental in the founding of the United Farm Workers Union, or UFW. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a there's a there's a thread uh, which is about the contaminant, right, the immigrant who comes here to contaminate us. And the implication is whiteness is cleanliness. You're not white. You must be dirty. And so there are the those are subtle forms of a kind of um, control of the dirty um, immigrant. Thank you so much for shedding light on the ways that racial violence can be done in the name of hygiene and the role that toxic chemicals plays in that. As we learned from Alex earlier, we need to understand that many cleaning products contain toxic chemicals. And as feminists recognize how domestic workers, many of whom are black and brown women, are disproportionately impacted. So I'm so glad we were able to approach this issue from a historical and sociological lens. Because when we don't learn this history, then we can't understand our present and change the course of our future. We repeat the same mistakes, but when we do, we begin to understand how these racist and colonial structures get repackaged over time and sold to us to maintain the status quo. In other words, when we understand how racism works, we can understand how these historical structures are shaping the struggles of household cleaners today and bring attention to how it impacts their health. Because household cleaners' health isn't just impacted by the dangers of toxic chemicals alone but their health outcomes may be exacerbated by the accumulation of other environmental and social factors, factors that are shaped by this history. Before ending our interview, Jennifer wanted to let us know where we can learn more and dig into this history ourselves. 
I should give the URL, which is www.dwherstories, so D-W-H-E-R-S-T-O-R-I-E-S.com. So how are domestic workers being impacted today? And how are we learning and listening from domestic workers themselves about their struggles? We cannot end this episode without talking about how COVID-19 has impacted domestic workers. Lilia, a household cleaner that we work with, had a lot to say on this. Seven out of 10 domestic workers in the United States have lost 100% of their income due to coronavirus. Many of us have been excluded from the federal stimulus and state unemployment, and I haven't been working in two months. I have no money to pay my rent. In fact, I haven't paid my rent. I have my bills. They're pending. I owe electricity. I owe gas. Why? Because of the situation, I don't have the money. I don't have money to pay for my food, to buy food. I am a single mother. I have two children, and today I am very worried, since I am also a survivor of coronavirus, and I am now in a bad situation, both emotionally and physically. I am not happy. I am not at peace. I have cried. I have also spent entire nights awake thinking about what I am going to do, What will I do if the landlord arrives and takes me out of the house because of the situation? Lilia's testimony is heartbreaking to hear, but it is so significant because it sheds light on domestic cleaners' health from a holistic perspective. It's important to acknowledge that being concerned about getting evicted because you've lost your job and not knowing if you're going to be able to put food on the table can lead to serious stress. This is nothing new for many black and brown immigrant communities, many of which are already disproportionately poor. There are studies that indicate how poverty plays a factor in chronic stress and how long-term stress affects health disparities too. Not to mention added stress from discrimination and working in a context of criminalization due to unjust immigration laws. We already know that black and brown women experience health disparities, so we must also talk about cumulative health impacts and how this may exacerbate domestic workers' exposure to toxic chemicals found in cleaning products. Alex had some thoughts on this topic as well. We're just sort of, I think, scratching the surface, kind of understanding how those impacts are, are affecting health. But we know that they do. So um, you mentioned things like living in a place where there are more polluted industries. And so you're already overexposed um, to, to various chemicals. So the sort of insult to your health from an exposure from a cleaning product could be that kind of last straw. The other side to it also is that our bodies are, are you know, fairly well designed to fend off exposures to toxic chemicals that the body doesn't recognize. Um, so your immune system, you know, has, has defenses for doing this. But the more your health is affected by other things, the less well your body is able to defend against these toxic exposures. So that can be stress about violence in your neighborhood, or that can be worries about financial concerns. I mean, there's so many, you know, um, th- there's also the impact of whether or not you have access to health care. I mean, all of these things can add up. So the impact of the you know, exposure to, say, a cleaning product, again, could be that last straw and could have a lot more impact on a person's health than someone, you know, who doesn't have this kind of layer of other insults to their health. These were issues before COVID-19, and the pandemic has exacerbated them. 
So we cannot be surprised when we hear that COVID deaths disproportionately impacted workers of color. When many of them were forced to go out and work and put their health and that of their families at risk to be able to eat. Additionally, a recent report found that roughly one out of three COVID deaths has been linked to health insurance gaps. We already know that a vast number of household cleaners don't have health insurance. The fact that domestic workers like Lilia were denied economic relief and health insurance during a time of such need was and continues to be an injustice. And I can't stop thinking about what Lilia said about the role of employers of domestic workers. That is why we are asking our employers that if before they call us to clean their homes, to take care of their children, today we are asking for them to support us with this situation. And because before, when I cleaned houses and did the best I could, I did this for what? So that my employer could be happy. Happy to come home to a clean home. Disinfected. And because that's the way I like to do my job. And when I took care of their children, I did my job as best I could. As best I could. I took care of their children. And so today we ask for their support, since this situation is now worldwide. Domestic workers do such intimate care work for the families who employ them. Isn't it time for those employers to see that and support those who make their homes livable? Exactly. It is time. It's never been more evident how vital household labor is to the fabric and structure of our society. It is of utmost importance that the U.S. prioritizes the health of women workers of color. And this begins with providing economic relief, health care, and regulations that prohibit the use of toxic chemicals in cleaning products. Next episode, we will learn about safer alternatives to toxic chemicals and cleaning products and continue learning from domestic workers about how they have been organizing. Women domestic workers have been creating co-ops as a way to shift towards a culture of cleaning more safely and having power and economic control in the industry. During the pandemic, domestic workers in New York also took direct action to call for health insurance and a fund for excluded workers. These are testaments to tackling this health problem from a holistic approach. There are lots of solutions out there and we look forward to sharing them with you. Thanks for listening to part one. We hope by the end of this mini-series, you will feel equipped to make change in your community and beyond. This has been Persistent and Pervasive, Feminist Take on Toxics. Thanks, everyone. We are so grateful to Make the Road New York and the Safe and Just Cleaners Project for all the resources and consulting provided. Thank you so much to Clara, Lilia, and Maribel for your testimonies about your work. Thank you to our interviewees, Alex, Jennifer, and Michelle, for the knowledge and insights you generously shared. We thank our grandmaster on music and sound design, the one and only Steve Thomas. And finally, thank you to the cleaning workers everywhere who are continuing to raise their voices and fight so hard for safe products and healthy working conditions. At the time of recording, Jamie was the project coordinator for the Safe and Just Cleaners Project, and she has now transitioned to a different organization. If people would like to learn more about the Safe and Just Cleaning Project, they can contact Daisy Flores at daisy.flores at maketheroadny.org. That's D-E-Y-S-I dot F-L-O-R-E-S at maketheroadny.org. Jamie's views are her own. 